This is Sophie Wilson. You are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. This podcast, I'm going to talk about my experience sailing across the Pacific Ocean to Australia, in in particular of the last three years, where uh, Australia, New Caledonia, and also um, New Zealand, although I don't have any experience with New Zealand, have declared war on cruisers, that, that cruisers are the enemy and they want to punish us over and over again. And that's what they have done. And you would have thought you crossed the Pacific Ocean in a small yacht, that at least there would be some admiration for the feet or some appreciation that it's a big ocean, the boat is small, and, you know, you're not doing that for monetary purposes. You must have some sort of means because, you know, a boat, what does boat stand for? It stands for break out another thousand. Multiply that by two if you're in a foreign country. And multiply that by three if you're in, in the South Pacific. So what does Australia do? And what does has Australia done for years upon years? Is harass yacht owners. Now, I know there are some yacht owners that maybe are very close to, you know, very budget yacht owners out there that cross the Pacific. But usually those stories are about 20 years old, like of James Baldwin or the parties, 20, 30, 40 years old. Uh, and they were exceptional stories. And that was why they sold so many copies, because we're like, oh, it's really cheap. But truly, the typical South Pacific cruiser that comes from the Panama Canal, those people are more in line with the people that joined the World Arc. They've got 50-foot-plus boats. They've got big pensions. They had big-time jobs or big-time businesses. They've spent years and years learning how to manage a yacht. Maybe they just bought a new yacht and they're they're learning it as they go. But these are not people that are living on the margins, skirting the law, etc. These are people that can afford to pay, right? And they do pay. And they have been paying. And they pay every country that they go to thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars when they stop because their boats are expensive and there are lots of work that they can get, they need done on their boats. But what does Australia's border force, the Gestapo of Australia, do? They treat every yacht owner like they are a criminal. They assume that there must be some great criminal conspiracy attempt by someone that wanted to go on a one-way trip on a boat that goes five miles an hour. My boat goes four miles an hour on average. And there must be some nefarious purpose for this trip instead of Somebody wanted to go sailing across an ocean. The adventure of a lifetime that very, very few people do. So I flew into Australia on, uh, let's see, on earlier this month. And the I was forced to go through security to pick up my bags. Do you know how long that took? My interview was 30 seconds. Did they know much about me? Had they asked me about my background or anything? Did they search my bags thoroughly? Did they pat me down? Did they have the drug-sniffing dogs all over me? No, they didn't. They just let me right through, and I had free access to all of Australia, including with my bags. 
Now, I had a connecting flight, but I was not in the airport anymore. I was actually out of the airport. I walked around outside. That was the Australian Border Force for an airline passenger. And I assume that's also true for a cruise ship passenger. But if you are a yacht owner, not only will you have a dozen Border Force people picking apart your boat, asking you every question about when you've left your the United States, and the whole story. I kept on saying to him, um, you know, I wrote a book about this. It's not a secret. I wrote How to Sail Around the World about why I haul out the boat. I wrote Slow Boat to Cuba about my departure. I've got a podcast. I've got a YouTube channel documenting all this stuff. It's not a secret. I'm not conducting a secret voyage. Uh, I contacted you. Over four days, I contacted you like 12 days before, or 10 days before I arrived on an 11-day trip telling you that I'm coming. It's not a secret. You shouldn't be interviewing me and my crew member in uh, Law & Order style and accusing us of wild conspiracy theories. For instance, the wild conspiracy theories that the Australian government accused us of after we did our 11-day passage from Namia, New Caledonia, 1,200 nautical miles, 1,250 nautical miles in 11 days, averaging about four nautical miles an hour, maybe four and a half. We were a little bit quicker on the back end than the, than the front. Uh, you know, they had this theory that I had somehow turned off my AIS so they couldn't track me on this ship tracker website. Now, they're obviously ignorant of the fact that there are different types of AISs. And ships have really, really expensive AISs, which can, can set out signals that can be tracked by websites. But I have a really inexpensive Class B AIS that can only be seen really within 10 miles, uh, but at best 25 miles. It's not hooked up to satellite phone. It's not, you know. So we were getting AIS signals all the time for boats. We saw like four, five ships... Like four in this one this one shipping lane on one day, and then in the reefs we saw probably some sort of Australian Navy ship, but who knows, you know, whose Navy it was. You know, it might as well have been the Chinese, because really, if you're talking about a society that, that uh, Australia patterns itself after, it patterns itself after China, not England. Because their COVID zero policies, which did not allow people to visit their relatives in another state, did not, my crew member was an Australian citizen from Sydney. He was not allowed to visit his wife's grave for two years. He was not allowed to visit his boat in New South Wales, where he lived, in the state where he lived. His wife was buried in the state where he lived. He was not allowed to visit those places. Only the Chinese would do that. But no, it's not only the Chinese, it's the Australians. And it's because Australia is a fascist state. That the Australians are okay with fascist police state policies and... They like to exert that on their citizens and especially yacht owners. So so after we have a dozen people picking apart our boat and they're doing their uh, law and order interrogations and all kinds of other nonsense while I'm like, 
oh, go read my boat or this boat or go to my podcast. You know, I'm like, why am I treated like this when I come with a yacht, which costs tens of thousands of dollars? We put over $100,000 in this yacht. Even though we didn't buy it for $100,000, we put over $100,000 in this yacht to get here, right? And we continue to do that. And we do that, you know, just in New Caledonia alone, I was tabulating it. It was over $20,000 we spent in New Caledonia while we were prisoners of the New Caledonian government, which lied to us. They said we could take our boat out of there in 2020, but they wouldn't let us take it out of the country until just this year. You know, and it was the Australian government that wouldn't open their border until February of this year. You know, and they act like it's some big surprise that I haven't been able to access my boat for three years when they've been doing their Chinese COVID zero policies. Their Chinese totalitarian COVID zero policy, patterned after China. You know, I don't have anything against the Chinese. I don't have anything about trading with China or anything else, but I do have problems with their totalitarian government and their dictatorship. And I have problems with the, I don't have problems with the individual Australians. I have problems with the Australian government and its totalitarian policies. And it's a sad, sad commentary on Australia that Fiji, which is a dictatorship, Tonga, which is a kingdom, are much nicer places to visit in terms of their government, not in terms of their natural resources, in terms of dealing with their government than Australia or New Caledonia, right? And what does that say about these advanced democracies and how they are going to survive if they have such rapacious governments that try to mess with some of the some of the most law-abiding fortunate citizens who are the most some of the most productive citizens in the world right they had the disposable income to sail across the pacific ocean in a yacht in a boat which is break out another thousand and they treat them like they are ex-convicts and that is their mode of operation and they are constantly trying to undermine and steal not only their property but also their time, right? And so, you know, I've gone into the, I, I actually thought after I visited the boat in December, I, I posted that video about why I'm not going to Australia, which explained why the Australian government denied the Australian border force, not the government, the border force, which is an organization, like 12 people, they could dedicate 12 people to a boat with two people in it, right? Did, they don't even dedicate 12 people for the border force to check in at 747 with 700 people. They, they dedicate like four. But they dedicated 12 people to spin conspiracy theories about a yacht with two people in it. You know, and, and uh, my crew member who is Australian, he wanted to, you know, he was wanted to move into a hotel that that night he booked a room in a hotel he wanted to fly out first thing the next day because he took two weeks off of work did not get to do that the he was not allowed to leave the boat until a day later when uh agriculture showed up and why did he have to wait for agriculture we don't know because he was never asked a question by agriculture right 
He never, he actually did ask a question over the phone saying he wasn't sick. But when they actually physically came to the boat to find the fruit and vegetables, right, and meat, he wasn't asked a question, but he was allowed to leave after agriculture came in and got their money. You know, these horror stories about Australia have been happening over and over. And I'm still waiting on my cruising permit. You know, I may be waiting indefinitely on my cruising permit. Uh, because there's no end to the insane, totally loony conspiracy theories that they can spin and they cannot disprove to their moronic satisfaction, right? So in the U.S., you're innocent until proven guilty. In Australia, you are guilty until proven innocent, right? And guilty of what? I don't know. Owning a yacht. That is guilt enough. From their perspective, that is guilt enough. If you own a yacht and you come to Australia, you are guilty. So I'll just talk about the the passage. Um, the issue of the passage was, you know, the the New Caledonia government, uh, in particular immigration, has been playing this game of Lucy and the football with me. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Peanuts cartoons. So the Peanuts cartoons, Linus is a character in there, but in the Peanuts cartoons, uh, Lucy says to uh, Charlie Brown, hey, you want to kick the football? And uh, Lucy will put the ball on the ground like he's going to kick a field goal or an extra point. Charlie Brown runs up to kick the football. Lucy pulls it away at the last minute. Charlie Brown falls on his rear end, right? This is what the game that I have been playing with the uh, immigration department, the police off frontiers at the xenophobic uh, New Caledonian government for two years, right? So I told you about my experience trying to uh, do a paid hotel quarantine at my expense. I flew to Tokyo. I had permission from the government. I had paid the hotel. I got to Tokyo. Police off frontiers would not let me on the flight, right? They tried a similar thing with my crew member. My Australian crew member, he was... We notified police off frontiers... Over a week in advance, I wrote a letter on his behalf saying he's coming to there. They needed this thing, and they needed that thing, and they needed that thing. And they sent back to me a stamp letter of my flight, not his flight. And I said, hey, what about his flight, right? What about his flight? And their response was, and this, and also I do this all in, in French, right? I All my correspondence is in French and English. Their response was, have a nice day. So my crew member, Ted, he comes to, he goes to the airport. They won't let him on the flight. He has to, they have to talk to 15 different people. He begs, begs, and they finally let him on the flight after going through 15 different emails. But barely, just barely let him on the flight. I tell the police of Frontiers that we're going to leave on Sunday, right? Uh, Sunday the 15th, something like that. On the prior Monday, I'm like, that's when I talk to him. I say, hey, we're going to leave then. Can we check out as soon as Ted arrives? He's going to arrive at 4 p.m. on Friday. And for the cruise ships, they work 24 hours. For the planes, they work 24 hours. For the yachts, they work between 8 and 11.30 a.m. Monday through Friday. But they said, 
oh, well, we can meet you on Friday night or Saturday morning. And you have to meet the police off frontiers first before you can meet with anybody else. So they give us a number and we pick up Ted. Ted's plane is on time. We call them as soon as Ted gets there. He's like, I'm like, where do I meet you? And they're like, meet us downtown. Okay, we start driving downtown after we left the airport. Now, had we been at the airport, we might have been able to talk to somebody in the police off frontiers at the airport to check us out. But no, no, we drive. And then they say, oh, no, we we won't meet with you. Come back on Monday. Now, the issue with Monday is it was a weather window. And I have been looking at the Bundaberg Passage, and I have not seen seven clean days without storms or force eight in part of that ever since I've been looking. And indeed, we didn't even get that for this time. But I did see 10 days without anything over four six if we sailed to Cairns, right? So we were originally going to go to Bundaberg, but at the last day, we found that there was going to be force eight, nine, ten in Bundaberg on our arrival day on Sunday, the next Sunday. But we had a clean forecast. But if we delayed like two days, then we were at risk to be on the bad side of a cyclonic storm, which turned out to be on called Tropical Storm Gina, which went through New Caledonia and would have caught us. And if you're on the wrong side of the storm, you get sucked into the storm if you go downwind. If you go up, you can't Contango cannot go upwind, right? It certainly cannot go upwind in uh, 4.7 or anything above that, right? So you can't be on the wrong side of a storm. And so essentially, my crew member who I had come to New Caledonia would have flown there. Australian crew member, by the way, would have flown there for nothing. We would have missed our weather window. We wouldn't have checked out on Monday because there would be no weather window to check out for. Because if you check out on Monday, you're leaving at least a day and a half after you would have. Not just a full day, but probably two days because, of course, there's always some other bureaucratic snafu. So we just went. You know, I, I it's just, there's a, I went to New Caledonia on the, the idea that I would be allowed to sail my boat by 2020, not 2022. And I've waited with them. I've worked with them. I've talked to them. I've tried everything with them. But their racist, xenophobic policies against Americans were too much to overcome. You know, when I visited the police of Frontiers, uh, like the Monday before our Sunday trip, they were spinning conspiracy theories that I worked for the New York Times. Now, if you've been listening to my podcast, I'm a college professor. I've been a college professor uh, for over 20 years, and I've been in my current job for 15 years, right, at my current university. I'm not, I don't work for the New York Times. I've never been paid by the New York Times. Uh, I don't live anywhere near New York. I live in Louisiana, right? But they were still convinced that I was working for the New York Times and I wrote a bad article about them. Even though I did not have a byline on that article, I was not mentioned in that article. I didn't have anything to do with it. I don't speak French. How could I write an article about a French country and I don't speak French? Who could I interview? I interview everybody in English? It, it's absurd. And it's it's of the level of absurdity uh, that the Australia Border Force has, right? Their, their absurd conspiracy theories are that, oh, well, I turned off my MMS or I turned off my AIS. Well, I have 
a 10-year-old or 8-year-old AIS unit that I think I bought for like three or $400. It is a Class B unit. It does not have a satellite phone connection. It cannot upload its data to some global server. All it can do is transmit through my GPS or VHF antenna or something like that. I think it's VHF. And low boats that see me can get my position. But, you know, our position was not a secret. And, you know, anybody with half a brain would know that if we made an 11-day passage, there was no place we went between Numia and New Caledonia, right? And um, there's no, just, just was not, is not physically possible in a, in a, a displacement yacht, which has a, a limited haul speed uh, and a kind of crappy engine at the moment. So we went into, we went into port the first like day we motored, we motored like, like before we went offshore, we motored like three days, three hours. We motored like 12 hours, like on the third day or second day uh, for 12 hours. And then after that, we started having uh, uh, bleeding issues, error in the, the line issues, right? And so we did three hours, three hours before we had to bleed. Uh, and then, so we sailed the whole way, more or less. I mean, th because the engine just was not reliable. And we get to the we get to the entrance channel here in Cairns, and first time dies after like thirty minutes. Second time dies after twenty minutes. And it's a long dang entrance channel. We tried sailing the entrance channel, but we were starting to hit the buoy the second time. Uh, so I turn on the engine, then it dies. We anchor, bleed it. And we're getting kind of close to the time. Uh, had it had uh, Ted not like booked his hotel and everything else, I would have said, let's just anchor here and we'll come in in the morning. And let me think about the bleeding issues a bit more. The problem was that there was a bunch of air, a ton of air, like a quarter cup of air getting into the primary filter. I'm going to I haven't been working on the that yet. We also had an issue about um, Ted like wanted to take a cockpit shower. So uh, he used the, I said, that's okay. And he said, okay, I'm going to go do it. And next thing I know, he wakes me up and it's spurting out water, right? And so the cockpit shower broke, right? Uh, and I couldn't find a way on board. I didn't have an, uh, I didn't have a new replacement shower head. The shower head was broken. And I did, in putting a plug in the line at best had a drip drip leak, which eventually, uh, depleted our entire 70-gallon tank. Now, we had a spare 30-gallon tank, and we had the jerry can for five gallons, so we didn't run out of water, but we ran out of pressure water like a couple days before our passage. And after that, we, you know, and I was also squirreling away every, you know, one and a half liter bottle I had, and I had a lot of those. I was squirreling away water so we would, wouldn't uh, have a problem, and I, uh, so we didn't run out of water, but we ran out of pressure water. And we, and I didn't put the new stuff in the tank because I thought it would just bleed out into the sail locker where the cockpit shower is. So so that was an issue. But uh, anyways, I would not have gone into port on the day I did if Ted was not there and if he didn't like have his hotel room and everything. But for the third time, I, you know, I bleed an anchor. And this was also this is very exhausting from my perspective. Um, so, you know, Ted was one of the older crew members that I've ever had, and also one of the less mobile crew members that I ever had. So, uh, in terms of the anchoring, I had to do all the anchoring by hand, right? Um, and to anchor three times with Contango, both drop and, and pick up, 
and you have to pick up quickly because the engine you have a limited time on the engine. That is very exhausting on top of the fact that, you know, I was not getting my off watches because I was bleeding the engine and, and dealing with these other issues. And we were also entering the Barrier Reef that day. Um, now, it's, you know, it sounds like when you hear about the Great Barrier Reef that it's like one big long reef across the uh, Queensland coast. It really isn't. It's uh, at least uh, through Cairns, it's like a, a series of different reefs that are relatively small with big passes between them. So it's more like passing between the two Motus uh, than it is, uh, you know, going through a, a, a reef passage into a particular Motu, right? So uh, it's not like you're going through a hundred uh, yard reef passage. It's like you're going uh, within one mile of a reef, right? And so if your charts are not terrible, then you probably could be okay, but I still want to do that at daylight. I also want to do that myself, right? So that also kind of limited the amount of time. So, uh, you know, it's just, it typically is exhausting for the captain uh, to go into port, right? Because the most dangerous time uh, for of the passage is when you're going into port because you're it's unfamiliar, there's a bunch of hard stuff, you're relying on the engine more, you have to have your A game when you're going into port, right? Uh, and so that's the most dangerous time. That's when you're most likely to lose your boat is when you're going into port after a long passage, right? And so we, I bled it the third time. We got maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. We got right into the marina, and then uh, we were adrift. And, you know, credit to Marlon Marina that they had a guy come out immediately he had a he had a rib with a 10 horsepower and it was totally flat water in Marlin Marina. They got very high walls on Marlin Marina so it's not too windy and choppy in there and uh, I think it was also low tide, right? That was one of the great things when I was falling out of the channel, right? So I'm going in the channel, I ank uh we lose power. Uh I anchor the water was not too shallow for Contango to anchor at low tide, but it's much better to be doing this stuff at low tide, at high tide, you risk the chance that you'll never get out of there, right? Um, but, you know, thankfully, out of the channel was not too bad compared to Contango's uh, four-foot uh, draft. Uh, so uh, so this rib, I'm able to throw them the line that we prepared, the dock line we prepared, and they were able to tow us into uh, one of the piers close by. And and that was, you know, I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't have done it on that day if it weren't for Ted. It was a shame that that Ted, an Australian citizen, uh, had to be under house arrest for a day for absolutely no reason. But that's the Australian government for you. It's Chinese totalitarian tactics above the welfare of their citizens. All right, so I'll probably continue the uh, my discussion of uh, Slowboat to Cuba or the reading of Slowboat to Cuba in the next month's episode. But I just wanted to give you this this idea. But, you know, so they kept on... Uh, anyways, they were accusing us of, like, hiding our, our tracks. Um, my GPS unit oh, is is from 2013. It's, its memory is full. I had to delete some routes and waypoints to create new routes because its memory is full. Uh, and in the past, it has asked me to delete my tracks to save me memory. And I suspected asked that to Ted. But Ted says he it did he didn't delete them. All I know is they were deleted. It was a shame. I really love my GPS tracks, um, but it's certainly something I would not do. I did, you know, my voyage was not secret, 
and I told them, you know, when they were going down this line of reasoning that, oh, I like was making it secret. Number one, I showed them my waypoints, but also I have an Iridium phone and I have a record of all the Iridium texts that I sent to my wife, which were like hundreds uh, that have my waypoints. Uh, I have my GPS coordinates, my map locations for each one of those. So, you know, you've got like a hundred points of where I was at every different time uh, during the the passage. Uh, There's no secret of where we were, right? And any fool would know we just went on the most direct course that didn't run into coral. And there's a lot of coral in the coral sea. There's a lot of just like coral in the middle of the coral sea that you got to go around. But besides that, it was a straight course to Cairns, Australia, right? We went around the coral, didn't run into the coral, but we went as quickly as possible to Cairns because we wanted to get into port. Ted had a job to get back to. I didn't want to be at sea any longer than I had to be. Anyways, uh, have some fun on the water. Uh, I, you know, I think that the I said probably in a previous episode that the you know there are three things, three big risks for an international cruiser. There's the weather. There's the sea. The sea and weather. We're gonna call that one thing, right? Uh, that is probably the least least important risk. The easiest risk to manage. Um, there is your boat. That is a more difficult risk to manage because you're more or less on your own. There's not a lot of people that can help you. That's why we carry tons of spare parts, right? So I'm sure the Australian Border Forces conspiracy theory is that I'm going to start up my own Yanmar parts shop in Australia. I buy the parts for 300% of market price, and then I give them away to Australians to corrupt them into buying yachts. So my thir- so I have a lot of spare parts for my 30-year-old engine, which I buy in expensive foreign ports. And then uh, the third risk is the government. And the government is by far the worst risk of international cruising. It is the Debbie Downer of international cruising. It is the absolute worst part, the hardest part, the most frustrating part of foreign cruising. Not fixing your boat in foreign ports, it is dealing with moronic, Gestapo, overpaid, underworked Australian border force morons. All right, have some fun on the water. I'm Linus Wilson. Bye-bye.